Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions from a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Question podcast, a broadcast in which we seek to go behind the questions that many people ask. I'm Pastor Charles Roberts, your host, and my co-host, Andrea Schwartz, is with me again today. Andrea, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. Well, today we have a very interesting topic that many Christians wrestle with, uh, a question that many Christians ask, and it has to do with the subject of evangelism. Every Christian context uh, of any stripe, that's a subject that comes up. And so people ask, why is it so hard to evangelize people? People often are very reticent and concerned, and they get you know weak in the knees. They don't really know what to do. And so they ask that question, why is that so hard? But I think there's another question behind that question, and that would be why, or excuse me, what does biblical evangelism look like? What does it really look like? And I think once we get behind that question and ask that question, it will be very clear to us why maybe perhaps people have concerns and maybe what the solution is to that problem. Andrea, what do you think? First of all, let's acknowledge the fact that there are a lot of well-meaning people who love the Lord and really do want to share their faith with others. There are plenty who profess faith and, quite frankly, couldn't care less. But this question comes from people who really do want to share their faith. and. Part of the thing that makes it difficult is that I would say, even though America would like to think of itself as a Christian nation, I think we are very much at a point where culturally you have people almost apologizing in a negative sense for things that the Bible says. And so people become concerned, how can I get this message that means so much to me and really has changed my life? across to people who have heard so many negative things. So I think it goes back to the good news of the gospel makes no sense unless people understand the bad news that precedes the good news. Bad news has to be communicated to people in such a way that they understand not that bad things could happen to them if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, not that someday they might be condemned. The bad news is they're already condemned. They're living under condemnation. And apart from the straight and narrow path, the path that leads to life, Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, it's not going to happen. So it's like trying to save somebody in a swimming pool who doesn't think he's drowning. You may think he's drowning and you jump in and you save him, And he's mad at you. He's not happy that you came in and interrupted his swim. So the first thing people have to recognize is you can't give the good news until people understand the bad news. I think, too, that it would be important to sort of rewind things a bit and ask a question about evangelism in terms of what people think of it as. Now, you have hit on an important topic because, as we will discuss more fully in a few moments, People sort of try to sugarcoat that message, the the bad news part of it, uh, if they even bother to mention it at all. But I think there's an even more foundational issue that we need to think about. The word evangelize comes from the Greek term euangelion, which is a common word throughout the New Testament. And it means good news, or as it's often translated, gospel. 
But the Christians were not the first people to use that phrase and that terminology. It was in common use throughout the Greek-speaking Roman Empire, and typically it was used to announce some aspect of the reign of Caesar. Caesar's postulus, his messengers, would go out to various places in the empire, and they would announce that, say, a truce had been reached between this group or that group, or the legions had conquered some foreign tribe. And so this was the proclamation of the good news that Caesar has brought peace to the world. And so this was an aping or a co-opting of God's euangelion, which, of course, that good news was first proclaimed at the fall of humanity in the garden, where the Lord promised a redeemer would come, Genesis three fifteen and 16. I think the, the problem is a lot of people... They read the things in the New Testament and the Gospels and the writings of Paul as if they're underneath some sort of historical or theological bubble, and that's where they are, and that's where they remain, and it doesn't have any relevance to us other than we read that and talk about these other things. But I think it's extremely important that we need to ask the question, does what Paul and Jesus and the apostles and the earliest Christians, did what they mean by the term evangelism, should we pay attention to that? Should that be important to us? What do you think? Absolutely, because if you don't understand what an overt declaration that was calling Jesus the King of Kings, by calling Jesus the King of Kings, they were basically saying Jesus is the emperor, because that's what an emperor is. He's a king of kings. By calling it a gospel, and the Greek word you used about those who proclaimed it, it sounds a lot like apostle. Yes. That really what was happening here was a staging of this is the truth. What you're all used to is not the truth. It's a counterfeit. So in a very real sense, Christianity in terms of Rome was a subversive religion. It was an enemy of statist Rome. So if we take today's orientation to evangelism, which often is seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly, we love you just the way you are, you don't really have to change much, Jesus is your friend, not Jesus is the emperor, the early church was anything other than seeker-sensitive. Don't you agree? Absolutely. They, they were proclaiming another king. They were proclaiming another kingdom. When Saul was converted and became Saul Paulus, and he began his evangelism, people have this idea that he was doing something like hand... Okay, I'm going to be a little bit facetious with it, but I think many 21st century American Christians would automatically think, okay, he's, he's going to be doing something like we, we did at my church last Thursday night when we all went door-to-door to this nice neighborhood and knocked on people's doors and asked them if they died tonight, do they know for sure they'd go to heaven? Well... If we can go by what we know about the meaning of these words and the practice of the early church, Paul didn't do anything like that. When he went about right after his conversion, he most likely went into places where the Jews were and non-Jews and said, God has become king, and he he is bringing about that which you expected in the future. It has now come into the present. God is ruling this world through his son, Jesus Christ even though people don't like to admit it, it's still so today, was a profoundly political and cultural declaration. I want to read something. This is from a book called Surprised by Hope. 
The power of the gospel lies not in the offer of a new spirituality or religious experience, not in the threat of hellfire, certainly not in the threat of being left behind, which can be removed if only the hearer checks the box, says this prayer, raises a hand, or whatever, but in the powerful announcement that God is God, that Jesus is Lord, that the powers of evil have been defeated, that God's new world has begun. This announcement, stated as a fact about the way the world is, rather than as an appeal about the way you might like your life, your emotions, or your bank balance to be, is the foundation of everything else. That capsulizes exactly the approach of the early apostles. This is what they were about. And you can read this in the book of Acts, in Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and then when the early apostles were before the Roman officials. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That was a, a, in a direct attack on the authority of Caesar, because people were already saying that about Caesar. And to get a full picture of what they were saying in today's terms, I heard it said this way, it's as if today a church said, we are the internal revenue service of Jesus Christ. We are the Department of Defense of Jesus Christ. In other words, it was clearly saying this belongs to Jesus. What you are used to is not true. And so when you think about the full-orbed faith, you know, we've got status governments that tax us. Well, we could get into this another time, but God requires a tax. It's called the tithe. So everything that the state currently claims, other than its God-given jurisdiction, is a usurpation of God's jurisdiction. So when you say things like, well, we have to pay our property taxes. Well, we may have to in order not to have our property confiscated. But the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he deserves the tithe, not the state. And so this reorientation is so dramatic that in order to really communicate it to people, you have to understand the depth and breadth of what Christianity is and what the Bible proclaims. That is exactly right, and you use that term full-orbed, and this is the problem with so much American evangelicalism, is that it is not full-orbed. It is a very narrowly focused, pietistic type of, in many cases, civil religion, as you were alluding. Yes, I'm, I must pay my taxes. I'm compelled to do so. But nobody bothers to stop and ask, why do we tacitly, without much problem and with full acquiescence, recognize that uh, the government, the state, is king and lord over my life, and I'm not that concerned about it. I just give me my 55-inch flat-screen TV, and we'll just move along. But I think that if Christians would think hard about the results of that type of idolatry, which is what it is, we would recognize that the problems that we have in our culture are a direct result of our failure to have that full-orb faith, and this has a direct impact on the issue of evangelism. Because for too often, we have had this idea that to evangelize means that we are going to tell people how they can keep from going to hell. Well, there's nothing wrong with helping people understand what that's all about, but that is far from the, the main purpose of evangelism. And it really wasn't the proclamation of Jesus. Jesus went about preaching, what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom has come. It is a kingdom message. It is not fire insurance, as the, as the old saying goes. And until we understand the, the true nature of that, 
we're never going to get it right, and we're going to continue to have other gods that we worship, even though we claim to believe in the Bible. So instead of having this negative, I'm going to live my life so I don't get sick, the kingdom message would be more like, I'm going to lead a healthy life so that I can accomplish certain things. And so what modern evangelism leaves out is dominion. It just makes becoming a Christian so that you can have a better life, as if you are the end all. I remember early on in my Christian days, being in a Sunday school class, hearing a man speak who had been a Christian most of his life, saying how hard it was to share the gospel with good people he works with, because there is no sin in their life. So he was struggling with how to communicate the necessity of salvation to someone who didn't sin. And at the time, I didn't know much. But I'm saying, you actually think that there are people who don't sin? And his answer was, yeah. I mean, there's nothing that I see that he does that's wrong. So they make sin. This is the only thing that a lot of people will look at sin as. I don't steal. I don't murder. I don't tell lies. They don't recognize that the primary sin of all those who don't end up eternally with Christ is failure to love God with their whole mind, soul, strength and might. Everything about them is what they are required to do. So the failure to worship Jesus Christ as King of Kings is the sin that keeps people under condemnation. And the key to what you just said is what constitutes worship? Because people think, you know, I don't do all the things you just outlined, plus I go to church every Sunday, you know, I sing out of the hymn book, and I've got the King James Bible, or whatever my favorite translation is, and I watch this particular TV evangelist, I'm worshiping God. But we have already referred to very specific things that constitute worship, giving your obedience, pledging your life, your money, your talents. Take a look at your checkbook register or your credit card account. See where your money and your time and your efforts are going, and you might be very shocked to find that you are, in fact, worshiping another god. So these are very important issues, but let's talk about that negative side of things, because uh, we want to be clear, there is that component to it. There is the issue of personal sin, of personal alienation from God. We live in communities. We are parts of families, but ultimately we are also personally accountable to the God who created us and in whose image we are created. And, of course, rebellious man from the beginning has never wanted to accept that idea. I'm quite good on my own. I remember someone supposedly asking uh, Henry David Thoreau on his deathbed, you know, the author of Walden Pond. People read that anymore. I don't even know. Have you made your peace with God? And supposedly Thoreau replied, well, I wasn't aware that we'd ever quarreled. Oh, my. Well, well, that's very quaint and and, uh, witty, but it shows the attitude of rebellious man. Yes, people in their hearts are at war with God. And until they recognize that he is the victor already, and they must submit to his rule and recognize, not only because they need deliverance from that kind of attitude of rebellion, but if they would be honest with themselves, they would admit that their lives really make no sense at all because they have no foundation no justification for what they believe and what they do. And by God's grace, they will come to realize that there is a better way, a new way, the only way, and that is following Jesus, following in his way, believing what he teaches, and having your life and mind transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So let me just say this. If a person does not have a theology that pretty much coincides with what you just said, how could they possibly transmit this to anyone else? So maybe people's failure in terms of evangelism is they really don't have much to tell people. Because if they're going to tell them, come to church and you'll feel better, well, they might feel better at a baseball game than coming to church, or they might feel better going to a rock concert of a group they love than a bunch of musicians who maybe are sincere in what they're doing, but it's certainly not the same quality as the rock concert that's going to command $50, $60, tickets. So if all we're trying to create is a social club, it's being done better other places. So then when people say, come to church, why does someone need to come to church? Well, if the people who come to church are too busy trying to get the other people they bring to accept Jesus, it really isn't a question of whether we accept Jesus. Isn't it true? It's whether Jesus accepts us. Yes, and this brings up another aspect to this that we, we desperately need to address because you know we have been talking, and justifiably so, about how we interact with our non-Christian friends or people who we may not sure what their faith life is all about and talking to them about the kingdom message. But let's back up again and rewind and say, in, in terms of Christians, in terms of those of us who follow Jesus and we understand the full orb nature of biblical faith, our first and most important field of evangelism are our families. And this raises a very important issue about our children, our parents, our siblings, and their relationship to God, because this is the first place that we will have this opportunity, especially in raising children and and families, to proclaim that message and, and to live it out. So how we communicate to our children our faith is really important. If it's a bunch of rules and says, don't do this, don't do that, so when you're little, don't eat cookies if mommy said not to. Don't tell lies about your brother and sister. Well, when they get older, don't have sex before marriage. Be honest when you do your work wherever you work or you do your school work and you turn in a paper. Don't plagiarize. It's not that those things aren't true, but that's like saying you buy a car to not have a crash, to not get a ticket, to not run over people, not to get into an accident. So you get a car so that you'll actually go someplace and do things. And so if we do not create in our explanation of the faith, the fact that we've been created to serve God, and God's law tells us how to do that according to his terms, then everything we do is going to be focused or filtered through that. How do we have our children educated? Where do we spend our time in recreation? What sort of things do we support? What sort of things do we oppose? That's why it always comes down to the foundation of which God do you serve? Well, and also to to promote the idea that uh, being a, quote, good Christian or a good boy or a good girl means refraining from these types of various activities without the foundation is like uh, teaching someone how to drive, teaching them the basic components of, you know, an automobile, but not telling them anything at all about the need to put gasoline in the tank. If you don't have the one, the rest of it is rather meaningless. But the other issue relating to this in terms of the family is that the whole idea of a total stranger coming up to me or to you or you going up to them as a total stranger and trying to express some ginned up, if I'll use that term, concern about their spiritual life 
That has never been a workable situation. People know when you're being phony. And besides that, even though you may have some sincere desire to share the message of Jesus with someone, most people agree who have been successful at this and, and you know, recognize the, the avenue by which you can have that, that opportunity, you've got to build up the credibility. You've got to have an avenue by which you can talk to people. And you are far more likely to listen to someone that you trust, that you have some relationship with already about something that's significant about this. It's not to say that God can't use just sort of a blind evangelistic encounter in a grocery store or wherever to enlarge his kingdom and add someone to it. But the most successful efforts at doing this are dealing with people whom the Lord has already put in your path and you already have a relationship with. And, of course, your children, your family are already in that category, but so are their friends and your neighbors and people you, you have these connections to. Exactly. And I think part of the issue on that is if we just hand out tracts, if we just say the clever thing, have you ever committed a sin? Have you ever told a lie? Oh, see, blah, 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 you're guilty. That's great. Except if you're not going to continue to interact with this person, then you're just somebody they ran into and maybe they'll remember something or maybe they won't. Last Saturday, I was taking a hike with some other Christian women. And as we were approaching this one thing, there was this big table. Well, Easter's coming up. And there was these flyers inviting people to come to Easter celebration at this church. And they had a whole table of donuts going, here, have a donut, have a donut, have some coffee. You know you want one. And I looked at them and said, no, actually, I don't. And they go, here, they hand out a, a piece of paper, come to our Easter service. And I thought to myself, wow, donuts and coffee. That's why I should go to their Easter service. If I like these donuts and I had this nice cup of coffee, then this is something that will mean something to me. Really, that is so anemic. And most people who accepted their piece of paper, as soon as you got to the next trash can, it was in there. So if this is their evangelistic efforts, as opposed to really meeting people who have needs, if you go back to the book of Acts, the first martyr wasn't a guy who invaded the halls of justice at the time. He was somebody who was helping widows and orphans. That was the threat. And we certainly talked about the diaconal ministry in a previous uh, podcast and the, and the central significance of that ministry in terms of the spread of the message of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. And But see, that's another avenue by which you develop a, a legitimate, bona fide relationship with someone. And the uh, enticement of donuts and, and coffee is another sort of artificial way to gin that up rather than do the hard work and the significant work of establishing those kind of relationships are simply recognizing the Lord has already put people in your path to whom and with whom you can have these conversations. I, uh, when I lived in Phoenix, there were, and there are many of these big mega churches in that city as there are in a lot of places. Uh, some of these churches would send out mailers and I kept one because it was so astounding. Uh, rather than donuts and coffee, they were promoting a special two or three night seminar on how to be a good date oh, and they actually had a website you know how can i be a good date.com or something that don't listeners don't go to that site because that's not not exactly what it is but it was something like that but I, the reason i kept the brochure apart from the absurdity of the the whole point of the thing is that there was virtually no mention whatsoever 
that this was a Christian program or that this was in any way related to a church. It was because it was clearly the name of the church was somewhere on there, but in terms of the content and the sort of things they would be talking about, it was just another sort of how to be successful at this particular human endeavor. That's not a real avenue for evangelism. It's getting things off to a completely wrong start. You know, let's put this in just very stark terms. If we follow what Paul and the earliest apostles did in their context, it would be like us going through our shopping malls and places where people gather and pulling people aside, whether we know them or not, and announcing Jesus Christ is King and Lord. Donald Trump is not. George Bush is not. Barack Obama is not. The Senate is not. Jesus is King. His law is supreme. Now, where do you think that would get us? <laughs> well, the truth is, for those who the Holy Spirit is calling and those who are God's elect, at some point they will say, could you please tell me some more of what you're talking about? But the reason that seems so extreme is because we have bought into the idea that Jesus Christ can coexist with humanistic status leaders. One of the things that R.J. Rushduni does, and this is a recommendation, I'll repeat at the end, but he has a audio series on evangelism that's available through calcedon.edu. And the second lecture in this three-part lecture is about preaching. And he makes the observation that preaching is evangelism. And that if you go back to the whole idea of the early church and the gospel and the appropriation of terms that were very, very clear to people, the preacher, he, he says, people shouldn't talk about my preacher, the preacher at my church, because nobody should have a preacher. The preacher should be Jesus's preacher, and he should be speaking for Jesus Christ faithfully. And that in the time of Rome, if Rome sent out someone to announce something to someone else, that person wasn't allowed to change the message. The right. message stayed according to what the edict came out. And today, we have people changing the message because they're so sure that it will offend people if they hear the true message. Well, didn't Paul say he's not ashamed of the gospel? He wouldn't need to be ashamed unless, of course, it was going to be offensive to some people. Dr. Rushduni also, uh, in, a, in a reference that I too will share a little bit later, I don't know if he brought it up in the audio series. I listened to part of that myself. But in one of his writings, he says this, clearly biblical evangelism is markedly different from the salesmanship of modern evangelism. And he cites an author who in 1860 gave a vivid report of an Arminian preacher in the South preaching a nagging, pleading, whining evangelistic sermon, and the language is all too familiar. He says, we have the same today. The sermon, cited in part, was empty of biblical content, devoid of intelligence, and essentially a plea for fire insurance to avoid hell by, quote-unquote, purchasing or buying Jesus. And in a lot of contexts, that's exactly what it is. It is devoid of that kingdom aspect of the message. It comes right back to what can make me feel good? Uh, how can I not be afraid? Now, again, we, we don't want to make light of that in terms of the full or faith does address issues like fear and what is our future destiny. But the other issue is, is that the proclamation of this good news is that Jesus said, we have this life of abundance both now and in the world to come. 
The problem with a lot of American evangelicalism in evangelism is that it is so otherworldly focused, to paraphrase a time-worn statement, it's no earthly good. But that is not the message of Jesus. Abundant life, the message of the kingdom that Christ has come, that Jesus is Lord, is a this-world message, and it transforms everything. That's, that's the message that Paul and the others carried wherever they went. If Paul and the earliest apostles took their uh, responsibility using today's methods, we would probably all still be Romans worshiping pagan gods. Nobody would have paid any attention to it. And they probably wouldn't have been beaten, thrown in jail, or martyred. Exactly. Something that I want to comment on, and it probably falls in as much as a personal confession as well as anything else, is that whereas preachers can be preaching the fire and life insurance and make people scared enough either to accept Jesus, whatever that means, or don't do bad things and then I'm okay, I think as parents, especially those of us who came to faith as adults and had lived a life that when we came to faith, we'd say, no, this not only did it not honor God, there were real violations of his word. And so we were actually opposing God and not because we didn't know the truth, because obviously the book of Romans tells us we all know the truth and we are suppressing it in unrighteousness. But because that was our experience, and we know the things that we did that were contrary to God's law, and we certainly don't want to see our children repeat it, there was a tendency to highlight those bad things that happen to those who disobey God. And as you said, it's appropriate. But too many people, and I see the chickens coming home to roost as these, even they were homeschooled children or children who were raised in churches, By the time they get older, if all they have heard is how not to get in trouble, how to not do these bad things, as opposed to have a true dominion calling, that what I've been given in the family God placed me was the opportunity not to have a resume of sins that were offensive to God. Not that we still don't all fight our own pride and have other idols before God is the true God, but we don't do those things that the status public education is going to tell us is okay. We're not going to have to entertain whether sex before marriage is a good idea because we've been told from the time we were little that it's not. But if you don't include God created you to serve him and his law is the way in which you serve him better, in the process, you'll avoid all those negative consequences that come from doing those things which God expressly says not to do. So we have to communicate to our children that they are sinners, whether or not they eat the cookie when they shouldn't, or they say bad things or use bad words. We've got to communicate to them that there's something much bigger and that the kingdom of God is much bigger than the don'ts. It's very much the do's. And the, uh, the lacking of that full-orbed approach is what creates that tension and that dynamic where, again, we have people focused on avoiding certain types of behavior without any understanding or justification other than it's what I've always been told not to do. And that goes back to an earlier discussion we had about the issue of the sacred versus the secular. And this goes back to a much earlier theological, philosophical decline in uh, the, the Christian faith 
that comes out of Greek thinking, where the spiritual is looked upon as better than the physical. And so we must concentrate on, on those kind of things. And how this plays out in what we're talking about today is that, okay, being a Christian is all about not doing this, that, not doing this other thing. And that's my spiritual life. And I go to church and I don't do those things. But then I have my other life where I go to work, I send my kids to school, I go to the movies, I go to the ball game, my so-called secular life, and that really doesn't have any connection whatsoever to this other stuff, as long as I say don't get drunk when I go to the baseball game, or uh, I don't get in a fight with somebody at the, at the parents' teacher meeting at the public school. But the, right. what the problem with that is, see, is that we have completely compartmentalized one aspect of faith and said this is the only place that God is allowed to be king. Uh, the rest of it, it, it's up for grabs. And by doing all those other things, sending the kids to the public school or becoming involved with things that, there are some things that, for example, you might have your child participate in. Your child might be on a basketball team or might take music lessons. Okay, so there may be people there, even the teachers who aren't expressly Christian. But if you're not supplying another counterpart to things that the children are exposed to in the music presentation or in the sports things, then really what you're doing is you're saying it's okay for them to be evangelized because they're being given what their teachers and these environments will say is truth. And so if the gospel is truth, the gospel according to Jesus Christ, we don't want competing gospels. We may have to be exposed to things, but if we're not supplying the countermeasure, and this is why it can't be considered obedience to God to have your children go to a place where his name is not revered, where his law is not taught, where subjects are not based on his law word. You're basically putting them under the instruction of apostles or teachers of another faith. And that may be a whole lot worse than taking things that don't belong to you. And this highlights the point that evangelism is unavoidable. It is inescapable. The proclamation of the euangelion, the good news, is something that will be done. The question is, whose quote-unquote good news is it, and who are those who are proclaiming it, and to what end? And you have just outlined very well the dynamic, the challenge that followers of Jesus have faced from the beginning. There has been, since the fall of humanity, the proclamation of another god, another kingdom, that of Satan, and that of fallen humanity, along with it, in a direct competition, in a losing battle, frankly, against the supremacy of God's kingdom. And, you know, one of the great declarations in all of Scripture is in Revelation 11, where the angel announces that the kingdoms of this world are become, have become, not might become, not will become sometime after the rapture or whatever it is, but have become, in the present tense, the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And that, again, is as much a declaration of dominion in all areas of life, not just spirituality, not just in terms of don't smoke, drink, or cuss, but in terms of education, in terms of the family. This is the message of evangelism. And at the heart of it is the idea that individually we must be right with God, to use a time-worn phrase, and what that means is, is not, it, may, it certainly does mean if, if I am guilty of certain types of infractions of God's law, the catechism teaches us that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. But the foundation of that is to move us toward an attitude of obedience that is given to us by the Holy Spirit and the regeneration that he brings to us. 
But that is more than just, okay, now I can feel good about myself and I realize that I don't sin in those areas. If I do, I have an avenue of forgiveness. That's only the small part of the beginning. The rest of it, of the evangelistic encounter, is the bringing of all the world to become the disciples of Jesus. And that is a world-changing mission. And that is why evangelism, in its true sense, is a powerfully important endeavor. And let me add this, that if people are looking... Who, who is my audience for evangelism? In many cases, it's people who are showing up at churches mm-hmm. because yeah. they haven't gotten the full counsel of God. And lest you think that the enemies of God don't get it, unfortunately, sometimes they get it better than those who profess. Why is it that in state schools, the Bible isn't permitted? You can't, some teachers aren't even allowed to have it on their desk. If a student is giving a report and wants to thank Jesus for what Jesus has done for the student or the family, you're you're mixing church and state. If you go into a court of law and bring a charge against someone else because they violated God's law, that's not valid. So the enemies get it. They're saying you are to be silenced in the arenas of the public square. And too many Christians say, I guess that's the way it is. As opposed to, are you kidding me? Kind of like the way David, when he looked at his fellow Israelites and said, you're letting this Goliath insult and blaspheme the living God? What's wrong with you people? It didn't take machine guns and tanks to fell Goliath. It took a boy with a slingshot. How come we don't pull out our slingshots and say no to these things? Well, if we're going to be like David, he had no doubt who was king, who was God. He knew. And we don't do that today because we lack the indignation that he justifiably had, that the true God was being blasphemed, that he was not being honored. And as you have so well articulated, we have become comfortable with the glorification of other gods, of the worship of things other than the true God. And this leads us into the state where we are now, or the situation where we are now, where we barely have an idea of what real evangelism is all about. So maybe as we kind of come to the close, um, I I would just offer some suggestions in terms of practical uh, solutions or applications. Uh, First, uh, I would say, let's have a proper understanding of what evangelism really is. And we have tried to articulate that in, in the brief time that we have here today. But the second thing is to recognize that God has given you a commission. It is the Great Commission. It it is uh, that you are to spread this message to all and everyone that the Lord gives you the opportunity to. And you don't have to go knocking on doors of people you've never seen before. But you've already got people in your path, in your circle of acquaintances or outer circles, uh, that you would have these opportunities for. Seize the time. Seize the opportunity. Uh, to do that very thing. It's interesting that uh, I think sometimes the Lord gets our attention by those who purvey and populate other religions, false religions. They are far more adamant, far more motivated than we are, but we are the ones who have the true message of the kingdom. So we have to practice and train ourselves to be aware of these opportunities. So I would give those two bits of advice. Understand what the message really, really is if you are a Christian, and then take those opportunities that the Lord gives you. And recognize that the pearl of great price is the understanding of Jesus Christ as Lord, King, and Savior. It's all, he's all three. Yes, he's your personal Lord, and he should be. But it doesn't stop there. 
I always laugh. I don't know how many people watch the original Star Trek, but I grew up with Star Trek. And do you remember the prime directive in Star Trek that they were not supposed to mess with any civilization that they came in touch with? Well, first right. of all, they never abided by it because <laughs> every episode is that's exactly what they were doing. But just stating it that way, I remember when it dawned on me, this was the exact opposite of the Great Commission. The Great Commission tells us to mess with every civilization that is not bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and communicating the good news. So if you don't get opposition, I would ask, are you really sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not that opposition is the benchmark. I mean, you can go up and insult someone and then they're not gonna listen to you. But this message is impersonal. It's very objective. People receive the gospel subjectively in terms of their own circumstance, and they might have had this issue, and now God has redeemed them from that, or whatever it is. But the gospel is an objective message. We don't change it depending on who we're talking to. Who has to change are people. God doesn't have to change. Yes, and the message is going to be objectionable if we are proclaiming uh, the message of Jesus, the message of Paul, the message of the New Testament. It's not that it's objectionable to people, or we don't want it to be objectionable to people because we are making ourselves obnoxious, or it's our demeanor, or the way that we are attempting to talk to people. You can have everything in order, but if you are really proclaiming that message, if someone is worshiping a false god, whatever form that may take, they are immediately going to be in opposition and disagreeing with you. So that's where we really need the guidance and help of the Holy Spirit. We need all of our tenacity to be able to work with that and help people understand that this is, in fact, the absolute truth and the only truth there is, the only truth that makes sense and the only justification for all knowledge and anything else we, we do. And this gets us into another discussion we can have sometime on the whole topic of apologetics. When Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, he knew what the gospel meant. He knew the implications of the gospel. For those listening who may have this feeling of being ashamed of the gospel, not really wanting to let people know everything the Bible says, your first step in evangelism is to make sure you have received the true gospel. Absolutely. And we assume that our listeners are primarily Christians and people who are in some measure interested in these topics for personal reasons, but in the chance that the situation that someone may be listening to this who is a stranger to God's grace, we exhort you in the name of Jesus to follow him, uh, to turn aside from your life of irrelevance, irrationality, a life of degradation and meaninglessness, however it's showing up for you, and recognize that there is a path to deliverance, to salvation, to wholeness, a whole new life with a whole new order of life. And that is promised to all who believe. And we encourage you to pursue that as the Lord gives you his encouragement to do so. Well, Andrea, we, uh, we've plumbed this topic as best we can today. Do you have any resources you'd like to recommend? I have one in particular, but if you'd like to go first, please. Well, I'll just repeat the one that I mentioned earlier. This the lecture series by R.J. Rush Juni that can be found on the Chalcedon site, and it's called Evangelism. There's two lectures, and then there's a bunch of Q&A afterwards where people who were listening when it was recorded live asked him questions. And I think it will give you a fuller understanding. He goes into some of the things both Charles and I have discussed today. I would encourage our listeners to do that. Uh, that resource is available at the Calcedon website. 
And I would strongly encourage uh, the listeners to uh, purchase. There are three, I believe, three audio segments available with that series. They're only about $2, $2 each. That's money well spent. It, it, it is a depth of knowledge and wisdom that is portrayed in those three audio lectures. I would recommend, and I believe we've recommended this book before, but there's a book uh, Dr. Restini wrote some years ago called Salvation and Godly Rule. And in that book, he has a chapter entitled Salvation and Evangelism. Uh, the whole book is worth your time and effort to read. Uh, but that chapter in particular, Salvation and Evangelism, speaks very much to what we've been talking about today. And just to add to that, if you go to the Chalcedon site, you can purchase the book, but there are also lectures that went along with that book, and you might be able to hear one. I, I don't know. I don't have it in front of me right now, but most of the books that Rush Dooney wrote were first given, the, the substance of them were first given as lectures and then became books. So there's companions for that. If you put into the resources Salvation and Godly Rule, you'll find a series of audio lectures on that as well. There is a, a vast treasure of information and material at that website, so we encourage everyone to, to visit the calcedon.edu site for this. Well, that uh, will wrap up our podcast for today. Uh, we will look forward to you all joining us uh, again next week for another edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Andrea, remind our listeners how they can uh, get in touch with us. Out of the Question podcast at gmail.com is our email address. And really and truly, if after listening to this, you think, oh, great, you know, there's a question that I never know how to deal with, or I wonder what they would say about this, send them along. And we always do appreciate topics that are relevant to the questions and interests that you have. And with that, we will bid you all farewell and look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www dot kingdom driven family dot com